Well, good morning. It is good to see you. We've had one full week, one first full week of September with the kiddos back to school and everything. Hope you had a good start to the September season. And uh, tonight, by the way, you don't want to miss it. If you've registered, just a reminder that we're having dinner out in that lobby and then a movie right in here starting at 5 p.m. So you want to be here on time because we're going to get going right away and then we're going to get into the movie just a little before six o'clock. If you haven't registered yet, we have just a hair under 200 people coming. So there's still room for more, but we're closing registration at one o'clock. So you've got just a little bit of time. You can head over to kingstreet.org and you'll find the registration link there. And uh, but at one o'clock, that's when we'll close registration because we just need to firm up some details for the night. So uh, it'll be a good night together. We're watching the movie Overcomer, and uh, it'll be a faith-filled, inspiring night together of reconnecting with friends and meeting some new ones too along the way. So good to see so many of you back in person this morning. And uh, it's been an unusual week, hasn't it, with uh, Queen Elizabeth II's passing and um, 70 years of service, um, a life well-lived. Yeah, and worthy of honor. Yeah, worthy of honor and respect. And, um, you know, you've been watching what I've been watching and just sort of learning a little bit more uh, about a a woman who lived well and who led well. And, um, you know, to be consistent. She was consistent for a number of decades, right? And kind and served and uh, was the kind of person who... uh, stayed out of the headlines for all the right reasons, right? And so we, we honor her life and we pray for, um, for the nations that have been under, under the monarchy, including Canada. And um, so those of you who know our history know that we have a uh, connection, a strong connection to Great Britain and uh, as well to, uh, to the monarchy. So we'll pray for... Um, it's easy to forget, isn't it? When I saw King Charles uh, giving his first address, it's easy to forget that he's a son first before he's the successor as king. And um, I don't know, the royal family is very good at not showing emotion in public, but they're human like the rest of us. And they grieve. And so uh, we, we will pray for, for them and uh, for all that King Charles needs to uh, step into in the days ahead. It's been a reminder for us. I was driving with one of my daughters the other day in the car and I just, the Psalm 90 came to mind. Teach us to number our days, right? Scripture says that. Teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. And uh, it's a reminder. Any time, it's a strange thing, life in this world, when somebody who passes away who has been um, kind of before us on the screen or in the media in some way, you feel like you know the person even though we may have never met in person. uh, We feel like we know them. And so whenever someone um, that we know personally or feel like we know, um, it's a reminder for us to take inventory and to consider the trajectory of our own lives. And uh, we want to make the most most of the days we have under the sun. And scripture says wise people. So uh, today we're going to start a series called Untangled. And um, I, I, I think there's something here for all of us, uh, because all of us are numbered among the human family. And the way scripture describes our human um, tendency is toward entanglements. And um, whether it be an electrical cord that's hung up in the garage, or rope, or a fishing line, or, or whether it be a ball of yarn, when it gets... Uh, into a tangled mess, it can be incredibly frustrating. 
and, and much less useful than it was intended to be, right? When we get into these um, uh, discovering of a, a tangled mess, it takes some intentionality to untangle uh, the mess that we've, we've uh, encountered. So over the next four weeks, we're going to spend some time thinking about and considering some of the entanglements that we uh, are prone to. And scripture is very clear. We'll take a look at our passage to ponder in just a few moments. But scripture says that it is um, the sins that so easily entangle. It's almost like we are magnet to steel as it relates to sin and getting um, tied up in knots. Uh, it's almost like we're made of, there's, there's some Velcro on the soul, so to speak, and we get stuck to things. And, and scripture talks about how we are invited to live a good and beautiful life that is characterized by freedom, not compulsion. Um, the entanglements that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks, um, nobody gets up in the morning and says, I want to set myself toward becoming entangled. <laughs> nobody goes out into a fishing boat with their fishing rod and says, I'm going to tangle up my line. Uh, nobody puts away the electrical cord or the rope saying, I'm going to pull this out in the spring and I hope it's a tangled mess. This is the stuff that happens in life. And um, when we have experienced an entanglement, here's what has happened. We've experienced likely the pain of life or the disappointments of life. And we have, um, we've tried to cope or to manage, and uh, our coping strategy hasn't worked for us. And we've tried to either numb the pain or pursue the pleasure, and at the end of the day, we find ourselves in a little bit of a entangled mess. It, it happens when we set our face against the ways of God and choose to manage or develop our own coping strategies that we think will serve us best, only to find out, as scripture says, there's a way that seems right to a man or woman, but in the end, it leads to an entangled mess. And so uh, this, is, this is human for us. Now, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing that once we came to saving faith in Jesus and we decided to give our lives to him and orient our whole world around Christ and get baptized and join a church community and immerse ourselves in spiritual practices that we would never, ever find ourselves entangled? Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing that you take a spiritual vitamin, get immunized, so to speak, the Velcro tendency or the magnet to steel thing gets neutralized and it's all gone? Anybody here had that experience? All of us, if we're going to be brutally honest, in this room, we still understand exactly what I just said. Magnet to steel, Velcro on the inside of the soul, and we find ourselves attached to the things we thought we wouldn't be attached to any longer. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God, as we heard earlier, that Jesus himself is our rescuer. Paul wrote to the Galatians, and he said, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. And he wasn't talking about a charismatic gathering where there would be different kinds of liberty experienced from house to house within the church communities. He was talking about us no longer being held slave or captive to sin's rule and bondage over our lives. But we're human. 
And we sometimes step out of that beautiful, safeguarded place of freedom into unpermitted areas. Our coping strategies gone wrong, and we end up entangled. And um, so this is our passage to ponder over the next few weeks, Hebrews chapter 12. And as we've been doing over the last few weeks, if you're able, would you stand with me? And uh, we are going to read together. You're not obligated, but I would encourage you to do so. There's something about hearing the words and saying the words. So can you read with me in a way that your neighbor, even if you are alone in your row, loud enough so the person ahead of you or beside you can hear. So let's read together Hebrews chapter 12, beginning of verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let us throw off the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run, he says, with perseverance the race marked out for us. So the writer of Hebrews tells us, to be useful in the kingdom of God and to run the race assigned for us goes better when we are unencumbered, when we don't have the rope or the twine uh, tied around our legs. It's hard to run when we are entangled. Um, I think it's a very interesting observation. In John chapter 11, if you're new to the Bible, there was a friend of Jesus by the name of Lazarus. Lazarus died and Jesus came to him and he rose him up, raised him up from the dead. It is a powerful demonstration of the power of God through Jesus. But when he brings Lazarus out of the grave, he speaks to his disciple friends and he says, take the grave clothes off him. He would have been dressed in strips of linen because they'd embalmed his body and laid him to rest. And Jesus says to his disciple friends, take off the grave clothes so that Lazarus once again can move freely in the world. Now, here's a really important principle. Just like Jesus speaks to a dead corpse and it comes back to life, he could have spoken to the grave clothes and had them just fall off the dead man or now the living man. But Jesus involves his disciple community to help a friend go free. Maybe there's more going on in that story. Maybe you and I are part of the freedom that each of us is supposed to experience together. Maybe it's not just life with God, God and me doing life together, but maybe it's me right-sizing my life with God, developing an intimate relationship with him, and then allowing a community of others to shape me and lead me progressively into freedom. Because it's hard to run the race marked out for us when we are encumbered and when we are entangled. And so um, humans, all of us, have a lot in common. We're prone to this. David himself, King David, writes these words, Psalm 119. 
what, verse 133, the longest chapter in the Bible. He says, direct my footsteps according to your word and let no sin rule over me. Let no sin rule over me. Sin can rule our hearts, and when it does, destruction is not far off. Uh, when we read the Bible, uh, it is one unified story telling us about the gospel of Jesus, how dearly loved we all are. And before we're done this morning, we're going to eat and drink today together, reminding ourselves of the self-sacrificing love of God in Christ. And if you haven't helped yourself to a cup yet, there are in the lobby, and you'll, you'll be able to get one before we eat and drink together at the end of this teaching. But this one unified story that points us to Jesus, Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced to sin. And now sin steps into the human experience. We open our hearts to it. But it's progressive. As you read throughout the story, and we'll take a look at this in just a few moments, it progresses from chapter 3 to chapter 4. Relationship is impacted, and then it turns violent. Chapter 4 of the book of Genesis, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil. When we look at this story, it's important that we understand this. We have two worshipers gathering before God with an offering. One brings fruit from the soil, and the other brings um, the firstborn from their livestock. The language that's used there is very deliberate, very intentional. Just some of the harvest, right? But the firstborn is offered. Cain brings some almost like leftover giving. Abel brings firstborn. He brings the best. And we have this temptation toward violent sin right in a worship environment. I thought if we gathered in the church, sin would not be present here. Not so. Not so. Unfortunately, in a worshiping community, temptation can superabound. Acts of relational violence, perhaps. We can actually strike out and hurt one another just because we're offering offerings to God. Doesn't mean that we are immune to sin or temptation. So Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face downcast? God knew, but he was wanting Cain to know. He continues, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, here's a picture for us of how sin operates. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know. He replied, am I my brother's keeper? What a story. It is a powerful story of the progressive nature of sin. So first today, three thoughts before we celebrate communion. Sin is sneaky. Sin is sneaky. 
It's personified in the text. In fact, earlier, chapter 3, what does the text tell us about the serpent in the garden? It says here, now the serpent was more crafting, more crafty. In fact, it could be read more cunning or with skillful deception. Was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So sin is personified as sneaky, as cunning, as skillfully deceptive. Doesn't show up waving its hands and say, hey, here I am, I'm temptation. Doesn't show up with flashing lights. We don't have the evil one or the adversary show up with a pitchfork and with horns and with a tail dressed in a red outfit. Shows up much more subtly in our lives. Thoughts and ideas and suggestions and images and inclinations of the heart. Interactions, circumstances, impulses, things that just seem right in the moment. In fact, scripture says that near the end of days, what will happen is what is wrong will be seen as right and what is right will be seen as wrong. And so we live in this time in history when sin is somewhat disguised, but it has always been that way. Sin threatens our very well-being, the good and beautiful life that God is calling us toward. It is subtle and it is sneaky. It is crouching at your door. Shows up like somebody who's coming to sell you something. Or wanting to gain entrance or access to your home, but crouches down below the window area so it remains unseen until the door opens just a crack. So it can gain entrance to the home. And once it's in the home, it moves into all sorts of living spaces, pretends to be your friend. But its intentions is to twist and distort and to ruin the good and beautiful life, because you are an image bearer of God. You were made to be like him. And anything that resembles him, the serpent and his co-workers, co-laborers, and the seeds of rebellion that have been scattered throughout the human family, that unfortunately are in your own soul too, as they are in mine. They found soil there. We see a little baby born into this world and we say, oh, she's so beautiful. He's so cute. He's wonderful. And aren't they? They're glorious. They're beautiful. They're smiley. Sometimes they stink. Sometimes they keep us awake. All of that kind of stuff happens. We celebrate new life because there's something going on there. There is an image of the divine stamped on that little child. And we say, another God image has arrived. No other one like it. Just a slightly different angle, presentation of the beautiful glory of God. But there's something else in that little child's soul too. You know what that is, don't you? There are seeds of rebellion are there. And they will grow and they will grow and they will manifest and there'll be inclinations of the heart and that's why Jesus came to rescue every single 
one of us. Left to ourselves, we will ruin our lives. Without Jesus as Savior, without saying yes to his kingship, we will find the ditches over and over and over again. We may do it in all sorts of civilized way. We may do it in all sorts of educated manners. But at the end of the day, self is king. And when we live for self, we hurt ourselves and we hurt the world around us. It's just the way it works. And it's self-replicating. It's self-replicating. You and I experience pain because others wound us. We experience disappointment because it's life outside of Eden. And then we say, I've got to find a way to numb the pain. I've got to find a way to accelerate the pleasure. And we go looking in all sorts of different directions. And it's a coping strategy gone bad. And nobody intends to hurt themselves, but we end up doing it. And not just us, but we hurt others. This is what it means to be a sinner. It's kind of an offensive message, isn't it, to a sophisticated culture? Are you okay with being offended on a Sunday morning in church? The gospel is, remember this always, the gospel is good news first, bad news second, and good news again third. It's good news. You and I are loved. We bear the image of God. We are the only creatures who bear the image of God. There is intrinsic value in us. That is good news. We are not just evolutionary creatures. Our lives matter. Every moment of it matters. There's destiny over every person's life here today. Every single person in this room. You were made on purpose and for a purpose. It's good news. You're loved. It's bad news that there's something at work inside of us. We have a terminal thing called sin. The seed is there. When it's full grown, it gives birth to death. And we're literally going to all, we're all going to die. We are all going to die. I said that to our staff this past week. <laughs> it was a bit of a downer. I said, 100 years from now, none of us will be here. We're all going to be dead. We're going to give up the body. Bible's the Bible describes the body as a tent or as a jar of clay. The jar of clay will be broken. The tent will be dismantled. Our spirit will return to the God who made us, and our body will return to the dust it came from. This is the truth about our story. But we're more than that. We're more than that. It's good news, it's bad news, and it's fantastic news. Jesus died to reverse the curse. Jesus died to take sin upon himself so that you and I can go free. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free, right? No longer to be subjects to a yoke or to a weight of slavery any longer. We do not need to be enslaved to sin and evil any longer. We've been adopted as sons and daughters of the one true God brought into his family. The seed of the Holy Spirit now lives in us, and he is stronger than the seed of sin and evil. We do have the gravitational pull to go left and we should go right, of course, but that's not the end of our story. We will live with God forever. And one day that seed and that sinful nature will be fully eradicated and we will no longer have Velcro in the soul. The magnet drawn to steel will be neutralized forever. That's good news, right? Good news, bad news, good news. But if I never give you the bad news, guess what happens? You never taste the greatness of the good news on the other side. You and I have an appointment with death. And without Jesus, we are lost forever. 
That's the truth of the gospel. It's the narrow way of Jesus. I love all of my Canadian neighbors, regardless of their faith persuasion, regardless of where they line up with some moral compass, whether it's uh, complementary to mine, in step with mine, or opposed to mine. I respect and love them all. But if you and I are going to be true to the gospel of Jesus, hear me loud and clear on this one. If we're going to be uh, clear about the gospel of Jesus, there is a narrow way that we are called to walk. There is one way to God the Father, and it's through the Lord Jesus Christ. What was accomplished on the cross mattered. Jesus was not a victim. He was not just demonstrating only the love of God to us, though he was doing that. He was defeating sin and hell and death, and that now when we stand by gravesides, Alicia's going to stand by a graveside tomorrow. Death doesn't get the last word. This is what we believe to be true. Now, life in this world for us, we do not live perfectly. We just do not. But we should live progressively, right? We should be coming less and less influenced and dominated by the sinful deception of this world. And we should be saying no to the sinful nature and yes to the spirit and staying in step with the Holy Spirit along the way and gaining the upper hand along the way. Will there be setbacks? Yes, 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 and yes. You might be here today and you've gone through a tough season of setbacks. Every human who has a dual nature, you are a saint and a sinner, will have moments when you try to cope on your own and you'll get it wrong. Thanks be to God for Jesus. Thanks be to God for Jesus. And we keep coming back to that. My worst moment does not define me. Your worst moment does not define you. What happened on your behalf is what defines you. Jesus, when Christ, who is your life, appears, right? Then you also will appear with him in glory. So sin is sneaky. It is incredibly sneaky. And when we're, remember, remember HALT, H-A-L-T, when we're hungry, angry, lonely, and tired, (laughs) it's even more sneaky. Have you found that to be true? When you are hungry, it's probably the worst. Hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. We're vulnerable. We're vulnerable. And you know what the, the serpent wants to do? When he gets you vulnerable and we try to cope and we get it wrong, instead of going the right way, we go the wrong way. He wants to whisper into your spirit that there's no way back. He wants to infect you with a core belief that starts acknowledging that you're a failure. That if everybody knew the worst about you, nobody would want to be your friend. He wants to whisper to you that even God himself is getting frustrated with you. He's even growing tired of your failures. Do you know every one of your failures, every one of my failures, were known by God, every one of them. The beginning and the end. He is present in all of it simultaneously because he's above space and time, not confined like his dependent creatures like we are. He's present in your worst and best moments simultaneously. And he knew the worst about you and he still died for you. 
So that means that we should not be listening to this whisper, this cunning, deceptive tactic that plays to our poorest thoughts about ourselves. Because when we are entangled, we're not running with perseverance the race marked out for us. We're not as useful in the kingdom of God when we're entangled. So he wants to entangle you, not to divorce you from the love of God, because he can't. Nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ. But what he wants to do is get you entangled so you're less useful in his kingdom. You're less present at home with your kids. You're a distracted spouse. You're not engaged in your local church. You're not using your spiritual gifts because you think you're unworthy. Therefore, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All of that has been canceled. All of that has been canceled. We can walk in freedom. So I got to move quickly here. We need to be aware of our vulnerability. We are prone to answer the door, aren't we? <laughs> Some people have on their doors, no soliciting. No soliciting. Uh, I don't have one of those. Um, doesn't feel hospitable, but maybe I should. I don't know. But when the doorbell rings, Amazon packages are dropped off. It's funny, you know, my girls are unable to help with certain things around the house until the doorbell rings and the Amazon package arrives. <laughs> and it's all of a sudden, I hear footsteps and they're running down the stairs to get the Amazon. That's not really fair. My girls are fantastic. I was completely misrepresenting them and exaggerating that. Um, so we need to keep the door shut, right? Keep the door shut. Sin is crouching at the door. It wants to have us. It wants to master us. It's personified as being sneaky and creeping up on us. And if the doors open a crack, it's coming in. So let's just keep the door shut. Now, that's the ideal. But we do open the door. We do sin. We do struggle. We do fail. So what we ought to do is clean up the mess as soon as possible and then close the door again. Short accounts with God. When we let the door remain open and keep opening it, there's the, they bring more friends, if you know what I mean. They move into the house. Next thing you know, you're saying like, hey, wait, who are all these uninvited guests in my house right now? There is a beautiful book called Holy Housekeeping. And uh, there is a difference, by the way, between the demonic and sin, but there's also an overlap. And uh, one of my mentoring pastors from a bunch of years ago, including this author who wrote this book, Holy Housekeeping, says this, if you want to understand the way demons work in the world, understand this, they're like rats and they love to feed on garbage. So if you take the garbage to the curb, the rodents will leave with you. They will follow the garbage. So keep the garbage out of the house and the rodents won't be there either. It's a very simplistic way of talking about it, but it's a picture that lives. Take the garbage to the curb on a regular basis, and you won't find there is any infestation in the house, so to speak, right? Okay, so sin is sneaky. Sin destroys. Um, uh, 
Sin, again, is presented as, did God really say, right? The serpent comes, did God really say twisting, twisting the words of God, not straight up calling them into question, but just did God really say, just to see if he can gain audience. He gains audience, and then he's got them hook, line, and sinker, and they'll do life their way. This is the way it works. We're introduced to this in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. Look at the progression that happens. This happens in our lives too. Here it is, real quick. It always starts with an idea or a thought. Did God really say? Starts with a thought, starts with an idea. It becomes a suggestion perhaps, and we pay attention. Secondly, it becomes an action. Maybe God's holding out on me and I should go and try the fruit from this tree. Even though there were no other trees at Roth Limits, they could have eaten from any other tree But you know, once you're told that you can't eat fruit from that tree, doesn't that tree become even that much more appealing? This is the way human nature works. Because in our minds, we think, I know better than God. This isn't going to hurt anybody, right? If I do this over here, nobody will know. But I'll know. And it won't just be that I'll know. There'll be a breach. Something will have happened between me and God. And not just me and God, the story plays out, me and my brothers and sisters. It creates problems in relationships. How did eating fruit from the tree that was prohibited cause Adam and Eve, who were naked and knew no shame, right? All of a sudden recognize that they're naked, cover themselves, hide from God, and then blame each other and start blaming. When we sin, we never sin in isolation. There's always a domino effect that happens, and it happens relationally. It happened with Adam and Eve. There was a separation between both the man and the woman and their relationship with God. And as I mentioned earlier, it can happen in a worshiping community. Cain is making an offering to God, and sin is right there with him. Let's not forget, by the way, about innocent Abel. What did Abel do wrong? Abel's just offering the best of his livestock. Next thing you know, his brother says, hey, do you want to meet me out in the field? Sure, let's go. He's out there, first homicide in the human family. Abel's done nothing wrong. Sin hurts innocent people too. And it leads to self-deception and the denial of responsibility. Where's your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? I don't have responsibility for anybody else. Now he's not useful in the kingdom, right? Have dominion over the world. I'm not my brother's keeper. Um, I heard this this past week when I was on one of my walks. Pete Scazzaro told this story, and it's so good. Let me, let me just read part of it here. In 2004, um, there was a Ukrainian election. Viktor Yushchenko was the reformer. Does this ring any bells for some of you? He was challenging the Russian-backed government of the day which was quite corrupt, and the people absolutely loved this reformer, Viktor Yushchenko. The poll said that he would certainly win the election. But on the day of the election, the Russian-backed government intimidated voters, they distorted the ballots, and state television went public and said that the challenger, Viktor Yushchenko, had been decisively defeated. There was a woman in the small screen. Remember this, this is state television. The broadcaster is on the big screen and they are making the election announcement. 
for everyone who had the capacity to hear and see to understand what happened. But in the small screen, have you seen those? In the small screen, there was a woman who was signing for the deaf community. Wild story. She's signing. <laughs> Here's what she says. The one in the big screen is saying, Victor Yushchenko was defeated. He is not your president. The woman in the small screen who's signing says, I am addressing the deaf citizens of Ukraine. Do not believe what they say. <laughs> they are lying to you. I am ashamed to translate these lies. Viktor Yushchenko is our president. You imagine? Is that a gutsy move? Word spread throughout Kiev and the rest of Ukraine, and the Orange Revolution was born. And 17 days of social unrest resulted in offering the elections again, and Viktor Yushchenko won and won big. Here's the deal. I love this. We are living in a big screen culture where there are lies everywhere. And we are called to be little screen people who look for the truth. If we are not discerning and all we do is swallow the big screen propaganda from the culture, we will live a life consistent with the lie. Culture will tell you what to believe, what to subscribe to, what is true, what is best. We have to look for the small screen. Truth is being communicated. The biblical writers are the small screen. The Holy Spirit is whispering on the small screen of our soul. And for us, to not lead entangled lives means that we have to break free from the lie. And the lie is pretty strong. It's pretty strong. It's, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting day we're living in. If there was ever a day we needed to be discerning, it's right now. It is right now. Don't believe everything everybody tells you. And don't believe everything they talk about around the water cooler. And don't believe every memo that says you ought to do this. And you ought to do that. And if you believe otherwise, something's wrong with you. No, no. There might be something seriously wrong with our culture. And the gospel of Jesus is inviting all of us to be transformation agents who start with our families. And then we let it swell out into our churches, vibrant churches. And then we go into our workplaces and into our communities and we shine brightly for him. This is what we need to be setting ourselves toward with great devotion these days. Now is not a time, by the way, to huddle up and hide. Now is a time for us to circle back take inventory of our souls, get untangled. Brothers and sisters, if you are tangled up, now is the day of freedom for you. Now is the day of freedom. Now is the day to turn our back on sin and evil. Now is the day to set our face toward God and to live with great obedience and great devotion. And when we fail, when we sin, and we will, and hear me loud and clear. I'm not saying that sinless perfection from this day on is what is real and what is to be expected for us. That's for the other side. But for today, it's lean in. No tolerance for sin. When we sin, we confess and repent. When we sin, we confess and repent. And we, we, 
create a, an appetite or we, we say yes to the appetite of holiness and goodness and beauty and purity and all those things that God wants for us. And then you watch the spirit work through pure vessels. But when we are encumbered and we can't run free, we can't be useful in the kingdom of God. And our churches will lack the power and our people will lack the power. All right, number three, sin brings its own reward and it's not pretty. Sin brings its own reward and it's not pretty. Sin always overpromises and underdelivers. Sin hurts us in every area of life. Um, can I enumerate a few? It hurts us physically, biologically. Listen to David. David's sin was recorded for us so that we can learn from it. After he had sinned and he brought his sin back to God for confession and repentance, he says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. And then listen to this. Let the bones, the bones that you have crushed rejoice. When we have sinned and when we are carrying the weight of our sin and when we are entangled, and we're living in it, there's a heaviness, there's a weight on the body, the mind, the soul. There's, 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 as David says, the bones feel crushed. Um, we're going to continue our series next week, and we're going to have some friends from uh, Teen Challenge with us. And they're, they're not going to be, they're just going to be sharing a few faith stories, and then I'm going to give a brief talk on addiction. And uh, that's next week. But remember this. There, there is a biological aspect to addiction. There's patterns of behavior that get curated in our lives and our brain changes. And when we expose ourselves to sin repeatedly, we talk about strongholds and sinful patterns and, and addictions. These things are real. There are some people who, because they've immersed themselves in a pattern or lifestyle of sin, they're experiencing addiction. Sin is an, it's addiction. It's its own addiction. And, but there's a biological part of this too. And we don't talk a lot about it, but the brain is powerful and our brains can change. The thoughts we think shape our decisions and the words we, we choose and the behaviors and it's, it all just becomes very formative. And, and we need a moment in life when we get the trajectory changed. We step into the kingdom of God, but then it's a process, right? Take off the grave clothes. I don't want the scent of death on my life anymore. I want the scent of life on my life. And I need brothers and sisters to be part of the delivering work in my life and in your life. It's called a community. So sin impacts our bodies. Sin impacts us emotionally. Listen to David again, same chapter, chapter 51. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. Oh God, you, you are God, my savior. There was a guilt that was crushing his own spirit. We can, we can suffer emotionally when we sin. Financially, there can be financial costs to sin. This is what the Lord Almighty says. This is the prophet Haggai, chapter one. Give careful thought to your ways. That's what this teaching is about this morning. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. The prophet says, you've been planting a lot of seed, but at harvest time, not a lot's coming up. He says, you eat, but never have enough. 
You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're still cold. You're not warm. And then he says, you earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. You work hard, you save, you invest, but you don't have much to show for it. And I love what Charles Swindle says about this. He says, the reason you don't have much to show for it is because God has drilled holes into your purse. And the money that you've put in has come right out. Because you haven't chosen to do life God's way. There can be financial implications when we don't live God's way. Relationally, Adam and Eve, right? They're hiding and blaming. Cain and Abel, we've got deception and violence. And then we'll close with this one. This is my last thought before we have communion together. Spiritually, and this is the big one. Uh, Isaiah chapter 59, verse, verse one. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. That's good news. I don't know how much you've messed up in life, but if you're sitting here today and you feel like a big mess up, the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. That's an important part of this passage. But your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Did you hear that passage? It says here, your sins, my sins, have hidden his face from me or from you so that he will not hear. Here's what's going on in that passage. When you and I sin, it's not that God does this. Oh, I don't want to hear from that guy anymore. I don't, I don't want to even see this person. Get out of my sight. I don't want to hear from you. I've heard you too many times. You did it again. No, I don't want to hear you. The reason why God doesn't hear is because we've stopped talking. When we sin and we're entangled and we're living in that place and we're not reaching back to God, we're not talking with him. He's not hearing from us. It's our sins that have hidden his face from us because we're not looking for his face anymore. I want to invite you today to turn back for home. I say this often at King Street. Repentance is intended to be a lifestyle. I try to practice that most days. We all have lots of reason to turn our face toward God again. I don't ever want to come across, and this is why I'm going to say what I'm saying now, I don't ever want to come across that anybody in this room has arrived because we have not. And I don't ever want to come across like there's a bar that's so high that you can never reach it and you're going to wear yourself out to try to be good enough for God. You are loved just the way you are. You are good enough for God because of what Jesus did for you. You can rest in that. But this beautiful invitation that God has given all of us is for us to live our best life. And our best life is when we are not encumbered and we're not being tripped up and we're not entangling a mess and we're not frustrated by all the, the knots that we have kind of created for ourselves. He wants us to run. He doesn't want us to be falling over all the time. He wants us to run in open spaces with him and to accomplish all the purposes that he has for our life. Life is far too short to waste it on entanglements. But humans have to learn, and sometimes we have to learn the hard way. Anybody ever learned the hard way? I think we all have. 
and we all will. This is what it means to be human. I listened to a lady last night give a talk, and she was just saying, humans learn. That's what we do. Humans learn. Thanks be to God for his grace. Have you experienced the patience of God in your life? I sometimes wonder, God, why haven't you killed me yet? (laughs) The Apostle Paul um, spoke to Timothy or wrote to Timothy, and he said that he was the chief of sinners. You familiar with that passage? He says, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the CEO in the sinning department. And it's kind of like, Paul, what are you talking about? What do you mean you're the CEO of sinners? Like, I know a lot of other people who've sinned way more than you have. I know people who've done way more dramatic things than you have. I'm sure Timothy was thinking, what are you talking about, Paul? You've walked with God for decades now. Because Paul was close to God, and he understood the lack of holiness in his own soul, and he was in the presence of the Holy One, he felt like he was the chief CEO of sinners. So the most mature thing about people who walk with God is that they never really think they're better than anybody else. They always say, but for the grace of God, there I go. So whether you're really, really close to God or whether you're a long ways from God, even the ones who are really close to him, the light and the brilliance of his holiness shines on the imperfections of our own soul and we say, oh God, have mercy on me. Oh God, have mercy on me. My motivations are mixed. Not always that person who who presents himself or herself as authentic. There's parts of me, Lord, in the theater of my own mind, whatever it might be, that are known to me. Oh Lord, have mercy. May we never outgrow the Lord have mercy on me prayer. May we never look down on our neighbor and say, look how far I've come. How come you haven't come as far as I have? That's a demonstration how far you have not come, actually. And so we look with compassion and we look with mercy and grace toward our brothers and sisters and the missing part of the gospel. We look with compassion and grace toward ourselves. God wants you and he wants me to reorient our vision so that we see ourselves as children who fail and who make mistakes and mess up and are learning And he takes us by the hand, just like he would a little child. And he says, come with me. I'll show you how to do this. And we say, all right, Daddy. All right, God. All right, Father. I'll keep my hand in yours. And he'll show us where to go. When we are harsh with our children, we never get the best out of them. When we're gracious and kind, we lead them along tenderly, and they thrive. That's what God is like with us. He's leading you tenderly and kindly today. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance.